Appalachia. Appalachia is a very distinct word, and everybody has their own opinion of what it represents. Moreover, though, whether it's right or wrong, it stirs up images of everything from indescribable mountaintop beauty, deep forest, and cabins in the wood to trailer parks, meth heads, extreme prejudice, and xenophobia. The fact that one word can bring up such a huge response is an owed to its far-reaching influence in society. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world. They once towered 30,000 feet into the air and currently stretch from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. The inhabitants of these mountains through the many years of their existence have lived through and witnessed what can only be described as horrendous, demeaning, and even downright unbelievable history as we are now learning every day is not exactly what we've been told and what was once thought to be nothing more than fairy tale is now coming to light as truth. I often hear references to the movie Deliverance or people making funny banjo sounds when describing the Appalachians. I, being born and raised in these mountains, know that nothing in fact could be more wrong or, in some cases, more right. The history that lies in these mountains is rich and has been around longer than any place in the United States. In fact, far longer than the United States itself. We'll look into these mountains and learn about the good, the bad, and the ugly history that lies within them to this very day. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley, and this is Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. Welcome back, my good friends. Thank you for your time today. Please lend me your ears as I tell you the true story of the distinguished gentleman, Clarence Adams of Chester, Vermont. In the mountains of Vermont is the town of Chester. The town was originally chartered by New Hampshire Governor Benning Wentworth as Flamstead in 1754. The terms of the charter, whatever they were, weren't met, and the town was rechartered as New Flamstead in 1761. Then in 1766, a patent was issued by New York that changed the name of the town to Chester, named after George Augustus Frederick, the Earl of Chester and the eldest son of King George III. Later, the governing authority of Chester reverted to the 1761 charter by an act of the Vermont legislature, although it left the name Chester in place. Chester is famous for its Stone Village Historic District and Chester Village Historic District. The Stone Village section is located along Vermont Route 103 in North Chester, across the Williams River from the Chester Center. It's known for its many houses made of local granite. The Chester Factory Village is homes that were built between 1750 and 1924 and includes Victorian, Colonial Revival, and Federal-style architecture. Both areas are popular tourist destinations. Oh, and Chester hosts the Chester Fall Festival on the Green in September and the Winter Carnival in February. Looking at the beautiful town today, one would have to wonder how many of its town folk know about the part of its history that all started on July 29, 1902. That was when a loud bang echoed through the mountain community of Chester, Vermont. It was evening time. 
that loud bang would inevitably solve a long lingering mystery that had plagued the area for a number of years. Gardner Waterman was sitting in the living room of his home when he heard the bang. Maybe it's kids playing with firecrackers, his grandfather thought. But Gardner knew exactly what it was. He knew that a gun had been fired, and he knew that his father Charles had booby-trapped the window in his grist mill, which stood across the street. Charles' mill had been burglarized earlier that month, and he had rigged a shotgun to fire at anybody who tried to break in through the window again. I know. Many may be wondering what a grist mill is. Well... A grist mill, also known as a corn mill, flour mill, or a feed mill, grinds cereal, grain into flour and or corn meal. The term can refer to either the grinding mechanism itself or the building that holds the whole contraption. Grist is a grain that has been separated from its chaff by in preparation for the grinding. These mills were found all over the Appalachians for many years, and many still stand today in our popular tourist destinations. Anyway, Gardner jumped up and ran to fetch his father from a meeting at the town hall, and then together they called the town constable, Harry Bond. The three investigated the scene over at the grist mill, where they found that the shotgun had sure enough been fired, blowing out the rear window. The blast had hit whoever had tried to open the window. They knew that because there was blood splattered all over the windowsill. About the same time, one of Chester's leading citizens, Clarence Adams, was found badly injured in the back of his horse-drawn wagon. I've been shot by highwaymen, is what he told folks that found him and as he was carried into his front front door. It seemed that two robbers had stopped Mr. Adams at gunpoint and shot him in the left thigh. Needless to say, people in the mountains of Vermont just weren't that dumb. Didn't take them long to figure out that the highwaymen must have been the ones who tried to break into the grist mill. Constable Bond went to investigate the area where the distinguished gentleman, Mr. Adams, said that he'd been robbed. Maybe they left a clue. Most interesting to the good constable were the pieces of evidence that just weren't there. He could find no footprints, hoof prints from horses, or even wagon wheel prints from Mr. Adams' wagon anywhere around where Mr. Adams said the highwaymen had jumped it. And after he looked at Mr. Adams' wagon, he found no blood in the wagon seat, which is where he had been shot, supposedly. But there was blood in the back of the wagon, where the wounded Mr. Adams had been found. Constable Bond learned from the doctor who had called to treat the wounded Mr. Adams that he had removed 84 pieces of number 8 birdshot from the man's blasted-up leg. Charles Waterman informed Mr. Bond that that was the variety of shot he'd loaded into the booby-trapped shotgun that he'd trained on the window of his grist mill. I know. You're wondering how a man could set up a shotgun in the window of any place as a booby-trap and just walk away scot-free. Well, we're talking about a very different time in our history. Things like this were considered, considered genius, and that was even if they killed somebody. Wants to talk about Clarence Adams being a suspect broke in Chester? The whole people were outraged at the thought of one of the most distinguished of their citizens could be accused of such a thing. There had to be some kind of mistake on the constable's part. Clarence Adams couldn't be the burglar. A man of such prominence with such means would want for nothing bad enough to have to break into somebody's place to take it. After all, prominent citizens just didn't do that sort of thing. 
Mr. Adams had served the town as a representative in the Vermont House and as a select board member. He'd helped found the town's Whiting Library and the Chester Savings Bank. When the town had been hit with a string of burglaries and the select board offered a $500 reward for the burglar's capture, Mr. Adams threw in $100 of his own money for the bounty. Just none of it made sense. Constable Bond and a group of volunteers headed over to Mr. Adams' farm to search for evidence. Over the course of several hours, they turned up an odd assortment of items that townspeople had reported stolen. They found grain from the grist mill, jewelry, shingles from the town station's freight yard, and revolvers from a pharmacy, which, during the recent spate of burglaries, the pharmacists had stocked for terrified townspeople to buy, only to see them stolen by the very ones that they were to defend against. The investigators also found a valuable bicycle that had been stolen years earlier from a local furniture store. It hung rusted from a tree in Mr. Adams' property. Apparently, the poor man just couldn't help himself. He was a kleptomaniac, and his thievery wasn't limited to the Chester area. Investigators found a collection of bow ties that had been stolen from a clothing store in Mount Pillar years earlier, back when Mr. Adams was a state legislature. I'll be back. You're listening to Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend with Larry Bentley. Finally, a grand jury looked at all the evidence and indicted the distinguished gentleman, Clarence Adams. He was charged only with the gristmill break-in, though he may have committed 50 or so other burglaries in the Chester area over a 16-year period. As people began to speculate on Mr. Adams' motivation, some pointed to his voracious reading habits. He was hooked on adventure novels, which made him a thrill-seeker, and that explained his compulsive stealing to them. So then it was adventure novels, and today it's porn. What tomorrow, because somebody buttered the bread on the wrong side? I think we who don't do this sort of thing continuously look for some type of explanation other than they just plain like the thrill, which is what I think most often be the reason. His most read book, as some folks said, was his copy of The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Some thought that his fascination with the two-sided main character might seem too much like something out of a book itself, but it does explain how people view Mr. Adams. The distinguished gentleman Clarence Adams, a former selectman and state representative from Chester, Vermont, was convicted in 1904 for trying to burglarize a local grist mill. Justice came quick. After his arrest, Mr. Adams was taken to Woodstock to stand trial. Two weeks after the attempted mill burglary, he was convicted and sentenced to nine to ten years in the Vermont State Prison at Windsor. The story of his compulsive little-known criminal has lived on, much to the dismay of some of the good folks in Chester. The story overshadows what they view as more significant aspects of the town's past, like it's being the hometown of two Civil War generals and a Marine Corps general who won the Congressional Medal of Honor, and it's being the site of visits by William McKinley and Theodore Roosevelt. But we're not done with Mr. Adams, as there were were more strange events that occurred once he reached the prison. For all appearances, Clarence Adams resumed living as a model citizen in prison and was soon working in the prison library. 
Now, that in itself seemed odd to me, being that he was supposedly had a book fetish and drove him to do all this weird stuff. But nonetheless, his stay at the prison was a brief one. Within two years, he was out. The official record states that he left feet first, the hard way. He died, but rumors soon started circulating that he'd faked his own death to escape. Discipline at the prison was lax, to say the least, as a later investigation would discover. But during the winter of 1904, Mr. Adams went to the infirmary, complaining of rheumatism. His complaints soon changed to those that sounded a lot like flu. In less than two days, he was dead. The cause was listed as a edema of the lungs, or in other words, pneumonia. Mr. Adams, if he actually did it, rather than died, he would have required a couple of collaborators anyway and a fair bit of luck. The prison doctor, John Brewster, supposedly took the word of the infirmary's orderly, who was also a prisoner, that Mr. Adams had died. So strike one up, good luck, and good planning on that one. The good Dr. Brewster didn't even bother to examine Mr. Adams' body. Instead, he had the orderly wash the body and stuff its ears and nostrils with cotton before covering it with a shroud and leaving it unattended in a room to await removal from the prison. So, uh, Mr. Adams' good luck seems to be holding out, don't it? Some prisoner accounts claim that while working at the library, Mr. Adams became fascinated by books on the occult, from which he learned a secret to putting on an appearance of death. The next day, Mr. Adams' friend, William Dunn, arrived to retrieve the body. While it was being treated at the infirmary, Mr. Adams had given Warden his will and requested that Mr. Dunn be the one to claim his body. The odd thing about Mr. Dunn was that he just showed up out of nowhere just after Clarence had died to claim his body. Nobody had yet even sent him word that Mr. Adams had died. And as far as Mr. Adams' luck holding out, for whatever reason, the warden didn't think that it was suspicious enough to investigate it. <laughs> Mr. Dunn's said to have taken Mr. Adams to a funeral home to be embalmed and left alone to cool before the undertaker could do his work. He was said to have been left alone long enough for him to substitute a corpse in its place. This corpse was obtained from Dartmouth Medical School by Mr. Dunn prior to Mr. Adams' death. Then Mr. Adams rode hell-bent for leather all the way to Canada. There are accounts on record of his former acquaintances that had seen and spoke to him there. A traveling salesman from Chester supposedly claimed that he spoke to him in a Montreal hotel lobby. City newspapers spread that story. The salesman had no idea that he was supposed to be locked up, nor that he was dead. Others claimed that they'd seen Clarence Adams in other places in Canada, and a couple places even out west. While Mr. Adams was supposedly enjoying life as a free man, things got sticky for the warden at the prison, Edwin Oakes. The Vermont legislature created a commission to study the scandalous allegations about the prison, and Mr. Oakes quit in 1905, seemingly right before he was about to be pink-slipped. The investigation they claimed had nothing to do with Mr. Adams' uh, alleged escape. The legislature said it was investigating claims of sexual and financial improprieties at the prison. And so goes the legend of the distinguished gentleman, Clarence Adams. What do you think? Did he escape? Did he die? Let me know what you think. I'd like to hear from you on this one. Hope you've enjoyed our story today. If you have, please rate and review the podcast. And don't forget to subscribe, please. Go over to our Patreon page, please, and at patreon.com. Search Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend and give it a look. 
if you'd like to join there's several levers to join from and starting at mountain boomer all the way up to appalachian hillbilly or you can go to the facebook group appalachian murder mystery and legend podcast or we can discuss anything appalachian or whatever else you'd like to talk about i'll be back soon with another appalachian murder mystery or legend i'll see you then